0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Justin McGeary, one of the hosts of this channel. And today we'll be talking with John Butler about his book, God in Gotham, The Miracle of Religion in Modern Manhattan, published by Harvard University Press. Uh, Professor John Butler has taught and worked at most of his career at Yale University, in numerous capacities, and he's written very extensively on religion in America, particularly in early uh, colonial uh, American history. And his book on Gotham looks at religion in Manhattan, New York, starting in the 1880s and ending in the major exodus of all the Gothamites to the city suburbs in the mid 20th century, around the 1960s. As he tells the story, He considers the fears and expectations many had for religion in the modern world, and namely its decline. And the book focuses on Manhattan, one of the quintessential modern cities in America, uh, and in some sense, representative of the world. Uh, And Butler draws out some surprising insights and conclusions about religion, both in New York and in modernity as well. And he says on page 10 of his introduction that something is quite amiss In all the theorizing and assumptions circulating around the commonplace notion that religion would collapse in modernity's grasp, God in Gotham tries to figure out why it didn't. Well, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. And I was wondering if, before we start talking about your book, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, uh... (laughs) I uh, am currently a retired faculty member from Yale University who lives in Minneapolis. That means I went home, basically, um, because I grew up in rural Minnesota in a farm town of 1,200 people um, that, uh, you know, sort of looked like Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon. Uh, So we had Catholics and Protestants, and we also happened to have Jews, because uh, we had two Jewish families, who uh, one ran the grocery store and one uh, a dry goods store, as it was once said. So I, I, I uh, understood kind of, the kind of world that I ended up writing about in Manhattan. Though so my my introduction was to a, in a tiny, tiny Minnesota town. I went to the University of Minnesota as the U, as we call it here. And uh, both for my BA and my PhD, I taught, I was trained as a colonial American historian. I was not really trained overwhelmingly as an American religious historian. It's what I became, but that isn't what I was basically trained as. I did work with a historian named Timothy L. Smith, who ended up at Johns Hopkins, but taught briefly at Minnesota. And I took several seminars from him. So... um, Including one was a research seminar in which I wrote the first. My first publication was on the Black Church in Saint Paul, Minnesota, from 1865 to 1900, and I did that as a research paper for Timothy L. Smith. Well, anyway, um, I taught in California at Cal State Bakersfield, so I started out at a state college. I then, after four years, moved to the University of Illinois in Chicago, which was then called Chicago Circle. It's not called that anymore, but. Um, And um, in 1985, I moved to Yale, where I taught for 27 years, and I hired um, to replace the late Sidney Alstrom, who ironically happened to be from Minnesota and happened to himself have grown up in a town 40 miles from my own hometown. He grew up in Colorado, Minnesota, and I grew up in Hector, Minnesota. So um, that wasn't intended. (laughs) I think. But in any case, um, and I taught American religion. I taught um, a lecture course, um, which was fun to do. I ended up doing more administration than I had intended, sharing two departments, becoming ultimately, at the end of my time there, a dean, a dean of the graduate school, and a dean of faculty. So um, I did that, and I wrote some books and some articles and uh, most overwhelmingly on American religion. So that's my background, and uh, that's what led me to writing God and Gotham.
1: Yeah. And I guess, yeah, one of the questions I had was considering how much you've written, um, particularly on the colonial uh, American history, how is it that you ventured into the late 19th, early 20th century? Um, Could you tell us a little bit, yeah, how you came to write this book
0: Yes, I, I think historians all write their books, and there are, there's always something idiosyncratic, probably, about the way most writers, most historians write books, and mine is idiosyncratic. Um, so, several things. One is, I was always fascinated by New York City, in part because in 1958, my senior high school class went took a train trip. <laughs> Washington, D.C. and and New York City, and of course, by New York City, that meant Manhattan. It didn't mean the Queens, it didn't mean the Bronx, it didn't mean Brooklyn, it meant Manhattan. And we stayed at a hotel, sort of a semi rundown hotel, I have to say, that was fairly close to the uh, theater at which West Side Story was playing. West Side Story was premiered in 1958. And it was a really exciting time, and I I always remember. Besides that, I loved the musical West Side Story, so so that's one thing. Secondly, um, I'm like I was looking in about two thousand or thereabouts for a book project, and I'd sort of for me run my run my chain, so to speak, on books on the colonial period, and I really thought you know there's something interesting about New York and. Uh, I was originally going to write a book on religion in New York. Well, then I realized, no, you can't do that. (laughs) I had to write you right on one of the boroughs. I couldn't. And, of course, the borough that I would want to write about would be Manhattan. And um, I'll explain that in just a second. And the third sort of impetus to this was a friend, was my lifelong friend, Eric Munkanen, who sadly died In um, 2005, but he was—I went to—we went to graduate school together, and we happened to have married college roommates. (laughs) It was just an accident. So our wives were college roommates. We were both Minnesotans, so to speak. And um, Eric uh, was—Eric's field was urban history, and he was distinguished professor of history at UCLA, which he did for what thirty-some years. But he, he sadly got sick with prostate cancer, and uh, he died in 2005. But we used to spend all of our summers in Minneapolis, both of us. And we lived in the same neighborhood, and we each had two boys. And we used to shepherd them from wading pools to basketball camps <laughs> over the course of 15-some, 20-some summers. And uh, we talked history. And we talked, you know, mainly I learned a lot about urban history from Eric. So that really gave me a kind of a background. It was a very personal background. And uh, then I wrote about Gotham because it presented an intellectual problem. Why, if I looked at it, would, would there's something wrong with all the explanations about the rise of secularism, particularly in cities, particularly with urbanization and particularly with modernization. That's the whole theory. That's Max Weber. Weber wrote about modernization um, and talked about it, um, and he said that uh, in, in a lecture that he gave in Munich just before the end of the First World War, or it was then called the Great War, he said that um, you know the the, the the miraculous was no longer possible in modern times, and that the world had become disenchanted. By which he means, he used the word enchantment to refer to the very nature of religiosity. Um, the, the numinous, uh, the transcendental, of whatever. Instead, the world's becoming highly rationalized, becoming bureaucratic. And underneath all of that was the notion that it's also becoming highly abstract and urbanized, and there's no place for, for kind of face face to face life and face to face religion but that's not when i taught that's not the story that i would uncover when i had to lecture on on religion in modern times particularly in the united states it just didn't seem that way so i thought well what better place i could ha- here but i can go back to my 1958 class trip and say well how about writing a book on new york city which i quickly shifted to just to manhattan and the reason for it's shifting to Manhattan is of course that it's the most challenging of all the boroughs, religiously challenging of all the boroughs. In other words, yes, everybody knows that there's a lot of a lot of religion Protestantism, mainly in Brooklyn, um, but and a lot of religiosity in Queens and the Bronx, mainly Catholicism. But Manhattan, you know, just presents Manhattan's the epitome of secularism. It just reeks it just that's the popular image. It reeks secularism. And then, so why shouldn't I write on Manhattan? In other words, there's the, thats the borough you want to write about. If you're going to write about one, uh, besides it was much more fun. I thought it would be much more fun to write about Manhattan than with all due respect to write about the Bronx or Queens or Brooklyn. So that's what I did, and it took me much longer than I had planned because um, I did other things. I—I I wasn't one who was able to do a lot of research and writing when I was deaning and. Um, or chairing the history, Yale's History Department or whatnot. But anyway, when I retired in 2011 and we moved to Minnesota, I picked the subject up again. I had learned two things. One is I really had to start all over. I'd sort of been poking along with this for a long time. I had So I had to basically start all over um, because my note, <laughs> notes didn't mean what I thought they meant. And um, that, was, that, that was okay. And the big help to that Living out here, 1,300 miles west of Manhattan, was the Internet because of all the digitized materials that have been have become available in the 21st century. And that includes a raft of newspapers, not only the New York Times and the New York Herald Tribune, but uh, all the newspapers, the little newspapers that you can get, including some from New York City or the, and the suburbs, especially, uh, that you can get through newspapers.com. And, uh, you know, the digitized books through, through JSTOR, but also at Princeton, through HathiTrust, um, the 19, any books well into the, into the 20th century. And, uh, you know, you can get virtually anything. So I discovered I did do manuscript work in New York City, but I did huge amounts of research uh, on the web. And um, that's reflected in the book. So that's that's how I started, and that's how I worked. And um, so I ended up trying to tell a story of how religion prospered amid uh, all kinds of challenges in modern Manhattan. And that's the story that the book tells. The book does not tell a story of decline. It tells the story of prosperity, and it really runs counter to most of the narratives that we have about both religion in twentieth-century America and especially religion. Uh, in a place like New York City.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I think that one of the things the book has uh, at a number of points, kind of an element of surprise to it because of that trajectory. Um, And uh, one of the things that you point out, um, so you you give some definitions for religion and modernity um, in the introduction. Do you want, is there anything you would like to say Further about how you kind of define those two things.
0: Well, I'm I sort of take an old fashioned view. I suppose you'd say it's uh, a substantialist view, as they say in my profession of religion. That is, I think it has to do with with uh, the numinous. It has to do with it has to do with the an other world. It has to do with the supernatural. Uh, so I don't think I'm not one of those people who who would treat who uses a functional definition of religion which would treat Marxism, for example, as, re, as a religion because it, it sort of acts in the place of one. That is, people believe in Marxism and therefore they're religious. Well, that's not what I think religion means in our vocabulary and, and I, I, don't, I, I, I I do that. And modernity has to do with urbanization, uh, modernization, rationalism, the rise of science, etc. So I think those two. Um, so the question is, can you have uh, the kind of the, the numinous, the miraculous, um, in a, in this kind of a world? And the answer in Manhattan was yes. In other words, people, people by the by the thousands, by the millions, worshipped on weekends. Jews did, Catholics did, Protestants did. And they they did so in huge, massive numbers, and uh, the, in in their in its own way, uh, religiosity religion became a really powerful force in the in the city in the way people lived their lives, and that's what the book is. That's what the book is about.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is throughout the book, you at different points kind of engage different uh, folks' expectations, whether it's uh, someone like Weber, or in uh, the first chapter, in, uh you note that in 1887 and 1888, there's a gathering of Protestants, one in D.C. and one in New York City, uh, in Manhattan, um, and there, these uh, Protestants are explicitly trying to wrestle with um, urbanization, and what does it look like um, for Protestants to start engaging the urban masses that are washing up onto American shores. Could you share a little bit about um, their, the fears that were at the end of the 19th century that say Protestants had?
0: Yes. The Protestants were, were really worried about large scale Catholic and Jewish immigration, especially Catholic immigration to America. And they had a conference uh, first in Washington DC, and then they sort of reconvened in many ways in New York city uh, in other words, they didn't go to Chicago. They didn't go to Cincinnati. They went to New York City because that—that that was the belly of the beast. And uh, there, they—they they, they, they got sort of very social sciencey very early, and they had people out survey, doing surveys of, uh, you know, who belonged and what kind of how what was the attendance in various kinds of Protestant Protestant congregations and how were those Catholics. Organizing, weren't they, orga- weren't, weren't they really out organizing us and whatnot? They didn't talk that much about Jews in that conference, I have to say that. They, that wasn't really a little before their concern. Um, but in any case, uh, and they really thought, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in big, big, big trouble. Because we're being, you know, the, the all these Catholics are all wonderfully organized, and they're just going to take over everything. And here we are, and our, you know, we're not doing very well. And so we really have to sort of uh, pick up. And what they what they really ended up suggesting was that they would they would be better organized. Well, how are you going to be better organized? Oh, you learn modern organizational techniques. In other words. What 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 are you and I hearing here? You're hearing the words of modernization. You know, they didn't say we should go back. We should all move to the country. They said no. We need to. We really need to organize better. We need to have efficient congregations. We need to have professionally trained staff members. We need to have make sure our clergy are professionally trained and they're up to date in how to organize and, and manage and run a congregation in this giant city. So. Uh, and they kind of followed through with that. Uh, that, that was a big thing. Is that they didn't—they didn't push modernity away. They embraced it. And uh, one of the things that they ended up doing, this will come out in the in the, in the chapter later, is that, is that most Protestants and then Catholics, though they did it in different ways, and then Jews all became experts in real estate acquisition. They really were good at buying and selling property to provide sanctuaries for their worship. And they, they, they just became, became totally familiar with the New York City real estate world and were exceedingly good at manipulating it. Uh, Catholics did it through the archdiocese uh, by acquiring, so they, they have a little more challenge because they really like these large block, big block parishes, they like large churches and large sanctuaries, and they also really wanted a school next to the sanctuary, so they needed space for that. So, what did Catholics become? The archdiocese became an expert in how to acquire small pieces of property over, say, five to ten years, and then you, and then clearing everything out and building gigantic sanctuaries and a school. Priests didn't 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 operate quite that way they were happy with medium size or even smaller sanctuaries and but they were trade they 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 could buy and sell and and uh, Jews were were much the same they were you know they have medium-sized sometimes fairly large synagogues but largely medium-sized synagogues and they became very everybody became an expert and they also with with the, the Catholics also are an exception here um, you know, Protestants, old Protestant sanctuaries became Jewish synagogues and old Jewish synagogues became Protestant sanctuaries. And occasionally a Catholic congregation would acquire a former Protestant or, or Jewish synagogue. But that was rare, not because they had a prejudice about those things, but because they wanted much larger facilities. So that so that wasn't really in their re- repertoire, but they all they all just tra- traded back and forth, and the result was is that the city became chock full of sanctuaries. Every place, every street you go down today, it's hard to go down a single New York City street and not run into a sanctuary. And almost all of those sanctuaries come from the come from the period from 1880 to 1930. There, there are very few that are, exist before that. And not very many that, that were built after that. And this is the period about which I'm writing. So this was a period of immense religious construction. Everywhere, for every, for every, for all three of the major the, the three major religious traditions in New York City at this time. So I'm writing really before the arrival of Muslims, the arrival of Hindus and whatnot. Uh, so I'm really writing about Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. And, uh, the city became chock full of sanctuaries. You couldn't miss, you couldn't miss them. Some of them were extremely large. And of course, the biggest is St. Patrick's Cathedral. Um, but they also learned how to raise money. And Catholics were really good about raising money. And, and Protestants and Jews also learned their, you know, they, they learned that this, a portion of it could be, could be, if you gave so much money, you could have something named for you. And you apply a little plaque would go under that under uh, under a under um, uh, a stained glass window, or um, you know diff- different parts of a sanctuary could be named for people. Well, that's Catholics did that, Protestants did that, and Jews did it. So they really, were, were really uh, into modern fundraising very much.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you draw out, particularly in the chapter on organizing God is the different ways, as you've already noted, that they embrace sort of uh, sociological uh, approaches to research or uh, management uh, and organizing um, charities and these sorts of things. One of the things you do draw out is how there are also, there's similarities and differences between some of the different groups, Could you, uh, particularly in the organization. How, how, they're, how did these groups organize in different ways
0: Well, they did organize in different ways. And and let's start with Catholics. Catholics organized in the classic Catholic way. That is, they organized from the top down. Uh, That is, the archdiocese ran business affairs, set the rules for, for congregations, and they decided where a congregation would be created. They decided how a parish would be created. They would set the physical boundaries for a parish. And they really did. They really did organize from the top down. I won't say that Protestants organized and Jews organized from the bottom up, but I would say that there there was a greater play between uh, the arrival of an immigrant group from from some part of England or parts of Czechoslovakia or wherever, uh, and and then they would approach a, a Presbyterian. A group and say we'd like to found a congregation the Presbyterians would say okay well that's that's fine and we could you know you would follow our rules and observe our theology and you can do that some Protestant denominations the Episcopalians the Methodists did provide funds to help finance those structures the it is uh, I also argue in this book that the most or the the group that had the least uh uh, top-down uh, organization were were New York City's Jews because mm-hmm. the nature of Jewish denominationalism very much was that was was that the denominations didn't really enforce a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you, you congregations belong to a denomination, and congregations created the congrega- the, the denomination, but the, the, the center was really remained in the congregation. So Jewish denominations, for example, Reform Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, seldom, if ever, that I know of, I actually never found a single case in which a denomination lends money to a Jewish congregation to help it build a synagogue. And then Methodists did that, congregations did that, and of course Catholics did that en masse. So, so, that, so they're just, so they, the point is, is that they all organize is that they organize in different ways. And each way had its own points of success. Each way also had its own points of failure, but each way had its own points of success. In other words, modernization didn't require one kind of organization. It actually actually, uh, helped helped many kinds of organizations blossom uh, within the larger structure of modernization. They each learned better financing. They each learned how to deal with banks. They each learned how to deal with individual contributors. Uh, they each learned how to collect money from recalcitrant donors. Uh, they sometimes went to court to collect their money, uh, but they each learned how to how to do this. And and they all uh, looked forward to um, uh, the involvement of a greater Business efficiency in their operations.
1: Yeah, one of the other things that you draw out in the organization was you. You talk a little bit uh, in that chapter about the role of women, which um, largely there's still a lot of traditional um, positions on women at this time, but women still play a significant role. Could you say a little bit about? where they find a place in all the organizing that's going on. At
0: this time, none of the major denominations that I'm discussing ordained women. So mm-hmm. no, so there were no uh, ordained women ministers in the major organizations. Uh, however, the congregation simply depended upon women for, for huge portions of their internal social And religious life. It was uh, a man may have uh, headed a Sunday school in most Protestant congregations, but virtually all the teachers were women. And this was true from even before I'm writing, the 1840s, and certainly became even more true in the 1890s and then up into the 20th century. Women really organized the literary societies and whatnot, and most congregations had them. Catholic congregations. Uh, women were critical both to Catholicism not only in the huge numbers of women religious, that is nuns, but in the in the organization of Catholic fairs, which raised money for to support Catholic activities and also to support the construction of construction of sanctuaries. And these, these, these fairs were huge events involving all kinds of people. And were written up in the New York Times or the Herald Tribune or all the New York City newspapers. And um, they raised enormous sums of money, so so that to, to talk about it, yes, it's true that women didn't couldn't exercise a role in the clerical leadership of the denomination. But they exercised a vital role, an irreplaceable role, in the way that the congregations actually functioned on the ground. And that was true in all three all three groups. Uh, Jewish groups, Catholic groups, and Protestant groups. In that regard, there isn't a whit's worth of difference in the importance of women in the in the conduct of of congregational life, parish life, in in among Catholics, Protestants, and Jews.
1: You actually, uh, you've already touched on this a little bit. Um, you you take on um, so one of the, you, you mentioned a few times William James and his expectation that you know, institutional religion sort of gets in the way of the individual religious experience. And you sort of counter that uh, in this chapter about organization. And in the next chapter, you, you tackle the, the language of disenchantment coming from Faber and talk rather about how religion had a sacralizing role in the urban space. And you've talked a little bit about this in the acquisition of property. Um, are, are there other ways that they sacralized, so to speak, the, the physical space um, from buildings? Um, you also talk about media. Could you tell us a little bit about how they are?
0: Yes. So, so there's a, sacralization means the bringing, bringing religiosity into visible uh, and oral uh, aspects of urban life. And this happens in a number of ways. New York City became sacralized in a sense by all the religious publications that were, that, that ended up being, being, uh, being published out of the city. There were enormous numbers of them Protestant, Protestant publications, Catholic publications, and Jewish publications. Most of the, most of the denominations use the streets for various kinds of parading. Uh, and Jew, when when Jews opened, moved from one synagogue to another, they took the Torah with them, and they marched down the street. Uh, there were religious funerals. Some some of them street that resulted in street processioning, or Catholic children going from going from a Catholic going from a Catholic school to a to a sanctuary to attend mass, if the, if the school was a block away, they used the streets. They didn't use, definitely use the sidewalk, they used the streets to march the children from, from the school to the sanctuary. Uh, then there were the big holidays, and ultimately there comes to be, for Christians, Easter. Now, Easter is on the one hand secularized, but that's to say that all those hats and beautiful dresses and suits that men wore, that hats and dresses that women wore, didn't also have a religious place and didn't give, didn't give religiosity a kind of distinct prominence from the 1880s into, into the 1960s. Uh, So, so people could complain. Sometimes some religious leaders complained about the emphasis of materialism in the Easter parade, so to speak. But it also, those parades also reinforce the importance of Christian membership, Christian belonging, Christian participation in all of these, in all of these, um, in all of these Christian congregations. And it, that, by the way, is one thing that did somewhat transcend the racial issue in New York City, because, um, because, because Easter was as prominent in Harlem, ultimately, uh, uh, where, where I ultimately end up, and I have a chapter on the, how blacks experience religiosity the city, and they move from the lower, lower of Manhattan, they end up in Harlem. They're, they're forced there by segregation. But um, Easter is as prominent a holiday and as joyous a holiday uh, for black Christians as it, is for, as it is for white Christians over on Park Avenue.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things Manhattan is probably better known for is the the entertainment, right? Uh, radio, television, Music, these sorts of things. Um, how, how did uh, how did the religious uh, groups uh, uh, the, take well, and run with these another, items?
0: Yes, another way that, that, that the city is sacralized is through first radio broadcasting and then television, uh, and uh, and recordings. So uh, the city, the major recording studios recorded various kinds of musical groups, oftentimes, uh, for example, black groups, they didn't record them so much from the city, but from traveled all around, but then distributed all around the country, but then distributed the recordings out of New York City. So all of the the major labels all had black groups. Uh, They they all distributed recordings by black groups, but they also distributed recordings by uh, white New York City, by white New York City groups. And then there's the whole all, mo, mo, the Protestant denominations. Uh, many Protestant congregations actually went right in for radio broadcasting in the early days, in the early 1920s, before there were networks in whatnot. Some of the churches, for example, Calvary Baptist Church, uh, which was a kind of fundamentalist Baptist church, ran its own radio station right out of its right out of its uh, right out of its building. And then, when uh, the networks came in, you had people like Norman Vincent Peale or uh, others who really who syndicated religious broadcasts. And mo- the early major early broadcasts were were mostly from New York City. So we have sac- in a way we have sacralized airwaves. And then along came television, and the early television broadcasting for uh, Jews and for Catholics, Bishop Sheen. Uh, and for Protestants, Norman Vincent Peale, who was very active on television, all came from New York City. Uh, so they, they don't anymore, but they did then. And so that, that comes, that, that they prosper from the 1940s into the 1960s. And you know, interesting that, you know, most American Protestants probably never, their first encounter with a Catholic priest, many the first encounters with a Catholic priest of any kind, Uh, might have been watching Bishop Sheen on American television, having him explain various aspects of first general Christianity and religiosity, but sometimes very specifically about Catholicism. And uh, he was a perfect television personality. And uh, he looked like a priest and he dressed like a priest and he sounded like a priest and he was friendly. And so he was, so here we are, we're having the saccharization of the TV airwaves. And, and that the initial impetus for that comes not from Hollywood. It doesn't come from San Francisco or Chicago. It comes from out right out of New York City.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how they fill all sorts of space, the physical space, and then, you know, the sort of electronic, uh, radio airwaves and, um, the shows. Um, they also are headquartered off in many organizations, you, you know, uh, get headquartered out of Manhattan as well, like the American Bible society and publishing and these sorts of things. So the print world as well. Um, in yes, and life. then you
0: have the you know the, the uh, one chapter that I do have is that New York City becomes a kind of theological hothouse uh, between the 1920s and the 1960s, uh, and unexpected. Who would think who would think that you're going to have a kind of major reshaping in theology of American religion out of right out of Manhattan? But that's that's exactly what happens with figures. You know, with figures like, um, so at the lower end, if I may put it that way, Norman Vincent Peale, but at the higher end, if I'm speaking intellectually, uh, would be uh, figures like uh, uh, Abraham Heschel among Jews, uh, or uh, um, uh, figures like Paul Tillich, uh, you know, uh, or Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, uh, or Catholics like Dorothy Day, uh, you know, they they all figures like Niebuhr, Tillich, uh, Heschel, uh, Joseph Soloveitchik, who's an Orthodox theologian, less well known than the than the others, or Dorothy Day really had a profound effect on the way that Americans thought about, if I may put it this way, thought about God. You, you can't, you you know, once you go past them, people think differently about the divine than they were thinking before they encountered them. And, uh, you know, all of this takes place in Manhattan. These are figures who moved to Manhattan, who migrated to Manhattan, or came, Dorothy Day was born in Brooklyn, but but came, in a way, she came back to Manhattan. Uh, she's one of the few who was actually born, um, born in, at least in the city. Uh, uh, but all the others are migrants. You know, Niebuhr from Missouri uh, via Detroit and a brief stay at the Yale Divinity School, uh, where, he, where he felt <laughs> underappreciated. Uh, but, um, you know, others migrated from, from Europe, Tillich, uh, Heschel, uh, Soloveitchik. And um, they, 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 they were migrants just like so many other New Yorkers were migrants. The city was, it was a city of migrants. And it was th- that my, those migrations were central to reshaping, sustaining and reshaping religion in America in the 20th century. Because the, the implication of what they did stretched way, way beyond the city. In other words, Niebuhr isn't just important because he wrote some theology and New Yorkers read it. Americans all over the country read it. The same thing is true for Heschel. Uh, you know, he, he was the, he, he, well, his critics said, oh, he was, the, he was the Christian's favorite rabbi. Well, he was also read by a lot of Jews. <laughs> so, you have to say that. Dorothy Day had a profound influence and still has a profound influence. You know, mo- most Many Catholic facilities for the homeless are named all over the United States are named after Dorothy Day. So I live in Minneapolis in Saint Paul. The big, the big facility for the homeless in Saint Paul, Minnesota, is the is named for is named for Dorothy Day, um, and uh, so so the city has this profound intellectual theological importance that that can't be matched by any other. Place in America, whether it's a city or the countryside, no other no other city has this kind of force uh, of, of of thought that is true for um, the city as it's true for for men. And that and this is Manhattan. We're not talking Brooklyn, Queens, whatever. We're talking we're talking about Manhattan. And that, by the way, includes. Uh, figure who is much disabused by intellectuals, but that's also true for Norman and Zephiel, whose books still sell in enormous quantities. But who was not appreciated as an intellectual.
1: Yeah. W- one of the things you point out in that chapter uh, with as you focus on these religious intellectuals is you, you do a great job of showing the interconnectedness of these different figures and their overlaps, not just in their friendships, but also with their institutions. Uh, and one of the things you note is some of the tensions and challenges because these figures in particular are taking their traditions and uh, trying to engage modern issues and questions. Could you tell a little bit about some of the just the tensions and challenges that arose?
0: Well, sure. I think that, you know, Tillich, for example, you know, maybe the, was a superb intellectual, he was very interested in psychology. He was deeply criticized by all kinds of other Christians for being not very Christian. In other words, he, he, they said he was paying too much attention to psychology, for example, in thinking about the nature of religiosity. That sometimes there were personal there were personal dispute disputes as happened between Reinhold Niebuhr and Tillich. Niebuhr was unhappy with Tillich's personal life, uh, and Tillich, you know, um, Tillich. Um, was, let's just put it this way, Tillich was reputed to have been a, more friendly with women than, who were not his wife, than uh, was, should have been the case. And that finally broke a relationship between, between Tillich and Niebuhr. Niebuhr finally just said, no, I can't do that anymore. Uh, uh, on the other hand, Tillich, I, I'm sorry, Niebuhr and Heschel became friends Deep friends. After Heschel moved to New York City, after this, when the Second World War ended, Heschel was brought to Cincinnati by by the Union Theological by by, uh, the Reformed um, theologians in Cincinnati, and then after the war, he moved to New York City and he worked out of. Out of the Jewish theological seminary, but they both lived on uh, in the Riverside area of the city, and they became close personal friends. And it was Heschel who gave the eulogy at, at uh, Niebuhr's funeral. Uh, and uh, uh, so, so you have you have that. On the other hand, um, well, you, you 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 have Joseph Soloveitchik was much more standoffish. As an Orthodox theologian, ironically, he commuted from Boston his entire life. Uh, once originally by train, and apparently later by plane, also. And he would he would go back to Boston where he lived every weekend, and then spent but then spent the week in New York City. Um, and he, he's he was a little touchy about ecumenical relations, but he also uh, you know understood. That um, that uh, Orthodox Jews lived in the real world, and he sort of developed what's called modern orthodoxy to develop ways in which Orthodox Jews could still be true to their orthodoxy, but remain true, but remain important and and have a lively life in the in the modern world. Dorothy Day had a lot of tensions uh, with the Catholic hierarchy, and. Um, she, she uh, had minimal relationships with New York City Protestants, I think that's fair to say, but not that they didn't. Uh, many of them, like Niebuhr, didn't, didn't buy her, her pacifism during the Second World War, and she was a pacifist, and she, she never gave it up. Uh, but um, I think they were also liberal Protestants were really supportive of her efforts to, to deal with the poor and the homeless, which she did her entire life, and that's what her, you know, her her facilities all over the in New York City and all over the country to feed them were models for all kinds of outreach of of Protestants, Catholics, and Jews in in the way of in dealing with, with the homeless and and uh, the down and out in a, in our city, so in our lives and mostly in urban areas. So um they there there were. I think what's important is that none of them led charges, none of them led attacks on each other. In other words, in a time when we still had some difficulties, there was anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism in the general population, but none of these figures, not one of them, could be accused of joining in or supporting by implication any of those efforts. They were all implicitly tolerant of the religions with that lived with them in the city, and they were, in in that regard, they were they were models for, um, for if I may put it this way, ecumenical living, if not always ecumenical thinking.
1: Yeah, and one of the in the in that chapter, one of the things that's interesting is you kind of. As you get towards the end, as you explore some of their ideas, their relationships and the different uh, institutions that they worked with or occasionally had conflicts with, you also talk about um, a few institutions that come out of Manhattan that you see sort of maybe as representative of some of the changes that have happened. And one of those ones I thought was quite interesting was on Alcoholics Anonymous, which I don't know that most folks would see as somehow connected with Manhattan or having a Manhattan-flavored religion. Could you say a little bit about why you included uh, your discussion on Alcoholics Anonymous in that chapter?
0: Yes, well, I included it because the Alcoholics Anonymous is frankly a rather religious group. That is, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous refer to the divine, to God, and the sort of uh, the, the what's called the big book which is familiar to anyone who belongs to Alcoholics Anonymous, who follows them, is, is replete with giving your life over to a larger cause. And that, and that big book was largely authored in New York City uh, and uh, was produced out of the main group that formed Al- uh, Alcoholics Anonymous that, it lived, that, that worked in and out of the city. And so um, the organization has always had a distinct spiritual image and edge, and that edge was largely developed by the several figures who um, who worked with Alcoholics Anonymous and formed it in New York City uh, in its in its most formative days.
1: Yeah, that's great. It, it, I I found that the book has at various points, a number of surprises. Um, and that was one of the interesting, interesting ones. Now, one of the key chapters that we haven't hit on, you mentioned very briefly, was uh, Jim Crow in Manhattan. Um, and in that chapter, you you do note some of the similarities that white Protestants have with black Protestants as far as their facing of modernity. And I was wondering if you could both tell us about the similarities, but then you also say very explicitly that um, the culture that surrounds Jim Crow, forces the Black Protestants to kind of adapt in different ways. Uh, so could you tell us about the similarities and differences? Yeah, um,
0: the, the similarities are very simply is that, is that Black, the, major, the city's major Black congregations exemplified the modernization of religion in the way that they financed their congregations, in the way that they... Uh, in the way that they organized their congregations, they had professional staffs. They demanded professional staff training for for their associate ministers, assistant ministers. They expected their their the major congregations expected their ministers to be well educated and to be and to be as proper as the one would find among among uh, uh, white Protestant congregations because most blacks were overwhel- blacks were overwhelmingly Protestant. Uh, and so the, in organizational terms, they were as sophisticated and, uh, and organized in the same way that, that whites did. But the difference is, of course, is race prejudice. And that is that blacks were move from lower Manhattan into what was called the Tenderloin district, which is now to, which today would be, we would call modern Midtown but uh, and they all built huge big very very substantial congregations in midtown but if you go to midtown today you won't you will discover that there every one of those buildings have been wiped away uh and that in the in the rush to develop midtown what ha- what happened is that is that uh uh as as more more fancy apartment buildings were built in the 1910s 1900 1910 uh, they charged, They discriminated against blacks who worshipped in these midtown congregations. I'll call them midtown in these Tenderloin congregations, and they the the worshippers tended to move to Manhattan, move to Harlem, move to Harlem, and the congregations had to follow. the one The one thing that that the congregations do benefit from is that is that they reap they did reap the benefit. Of high high sale prices for their property when they sold their congregations, when they sold their sanctuaries, and even though the, and the, the sanctuaries were destroyed to usually to build new apartment buildings and office buildings, uh, they were able to use these these high prices to build very nice sanctuaries in Harlem. So they so they benefit so so at that level they benefited, but they it was a it was a strange and sad benefit because their their congregations had been had been emptied by the growing segregation uh, of of midtown manhattan and i try to demonstrate here i did a lot of work looking for looking for advertisements for rooms and apartments and what you find is that between 1910 between 1900 and 1910 in the black newspapers advertisements for apartments in what are now midtown all but disappeared. They simply, in other words, landlords in, in 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 the ten old Tenderloin district or what's now Midtown, was advertised frequently in in the black newspaper, um uh uh for ap- apartments, but those advertisements increasingly dis- increasingly declined until they simply disappeared by largely by 1915. There are no more advertisements for all practical purposes in Midtown. Or to advertise for blacks for apartments for rent, and that that's a sign that just shows you how this discrimination just really hurt, how how it really hurt all these congregations. So the congregations had no, really no choice but to follow their worshippers into Harlem, and uh, it it was it, it, it that discrimination was a prime area of focus. The, it, the black ministers. The one difference: they were far more political than the white the white, white clergy, uh, because they had to constantly lead on the question of discrimination against blacks, and they did. Uh, they, it was black ministers were, were important voices, central voices, in constantly complaining to New York City po- political authorities about the level of discrimination in the city.
1: Yeah, that was I think one of the things you you noted is that the church becomes a, a significant kind of locus for all sorts of activity um, because of so many restrictions, really, and what we call uh, other secular places.
0: So, the, so think about it this way: when Adam Clayton Powell becomes junior, becomes a, con, a first a New York City congressman, and then a, con, a a councilman. I'm sorry, in the city, and then a and then a congressman. He he had already served as as a minister in his father's church, Abyssinian Baptist Church, where his father was still was originally still the minister. But Adam Clayton Powell Sr., who led the congregation to move from the Tenderloin or Midtown into Harlem, was a major, was, was major a political voice uh, complaining about discrimination in the city his entire career. And then they that there's a, there's a relationship between the two Powells. Um, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. just is the one
1: who had elective office. Yeah, that chapter I thought was very interesting. And actually, one of the things that you note then is all of this that you look at throughout the book, how the surprising... Um, Resilience or non-decline uh, of religion in Manhattan. Um, you you conclude the book by looking then at the suburbs and the 1950s 1960s exodus from uh, from Manhattan into New Jersey and the suburbs of New York. Um, and you actually start there as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you see as the significance of of the sort of suburbanization of Manhattan religion?
0: Well. <laughs> It has two points of significance. First of all, uh, the suburbs became just chock full of synagogues and congregations. Um, and uh, w- w- what does that tell us about the about the city? It was filled with 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 people who had who had the, the suburbs were filled with people who had grown up in the city. And interestingly, what did they want? Why are they building all these congregations in the suburbs? Because they want the vital religious life that they had known as children and young adults in the city. It's a comment on the vitality of of Christianity and Judaism in the city when you see what's happening in the suburbs. The one difference, and here again, racial discrimination comes into play. What doesn't happen in the suburbs? Blacks don't get to move there because all the suburban, so many suburban developers refuse to sell all to blacks, and that includes the Levitts of Levittown. You know, uh, Levittown, New York, was was all white. Levittown, Pennsylvania, was all white. Uh, the Le- the Levittown uh, sub- sub- suburb, which comes later in New Jersey, was tried to be all white, but that by that time they had to kind of give up on, on that. And um, some blacks moved to the suburbs, but usually moved to old towns that have had Black populations for for generations and then become suburbanized. They used to be just rural, and then they become suburbanized. um, So so discrimination prevents the development of a new Harlem, so to speak, in the suburbs. Um, But elsewhere, suburbanization uh, takes off, largely because of the impetus from the, the uh, vitality of religious life in the cities. And so the, so the suburbs don't represent a new religiosity, they represent a continuation of the kind of religious vitality that most of these suburbanites had known as children and as young adults.
1: It's a fascinating story, and we have taken quite a bit of your time uh, and appreciate your time and appreciate the book. Um, I was wondering, before we come to a close here, um, could you just tell us maybe a little bit of what you're working on or thinking about working on?
0: <laughs> well, what am I working on? Well, uh, several things, as we say in the history business. What are you working on? Uh, actually, what I have to say one thing is what I'm working on Is, uh, well, one is getting through COVID. That's one thing I'm working on. Secondly, uh, because I'm not young. And secondly, um, uh, COVID has sort of shut down the possibility of going to archives. At least for me, I'm very reluctant to do that. And not all projects can be done on the internet. I do have a project, an interesting project about one that I really hope to get over to the Minnesota Historical Society about. And that is um, a a strange project running from the late 1930s into the late 1940s, in which the Minnesota's Jewish Community Council uh, uh, arranged for Jewish women to attend services at the First Baptist Church and the River Lake Gospel Tabernacle, uh, which... Why did they want to have to do that? Because the ministers of both were, no, were known for being major leaders of anti-Semitic opinion in the United States. And I discovered by accident that in the voluminous papers of the Minnesota's um, uh, Jewish Community Council that are housed at the Minnesota Historical Society, there are all kinds of reports from largely women who attended services at the First Baptist Church by William Bell Riley and the River Lake Gospel Tabernacle, which was led by Luke Rader, whose brother was an evangelist in Chicago named Paul Rader. Um, I think that they're, they're I think they're brothers. Um, they're both those two brothers were well known, uh, uh, and they were both 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 pub, both published and distributed uh, virulent anti-Semitic material. And so the Jewish Community Council wanted to figure out what was going on in these congregations and whatnot. And so there are all these reports, and the, 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 you know, uh, the women who wrote would write up whole page, maybe two pages, about what was happening in the congregation. And I'm interested in pursuing that. I don't really know. Uh, I don't know what I would. I don't know enough. I can't write it up now. And so that's a project that that very much interests me. It's, my, it's the one project. Otherwise, I have to say, that I'm reading, <laughs> so I a lot of reading, and uh, I just read a big biography of Charles de Gaulle, and uh, you know, so this is a good time to be reading, and and uh, I, I fortunately live in a in a town and a county with a fabulous public library, the Hennepin County Public Libraries are absolutely fabulous and they buy anything and everything. And so I don't, I'm not lacking. I I get more books there than I do from the University of Minnesota library.
1: That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for giving your time. It was great to have you.
0: You're welcome. I enjoyed this. Thanks. Thank you for having me.